everyone, my name is Anastasia Lapatina and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. Today, we're looking into the scandals that surround Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate and its links to Russia, which have already led to priests arrested, expelled from church premises and even sanctioned by the Ukrainian government. To explain why all of this matters for Ukraine's national security amid war, I'm joined by Alexei Sorokin, a senior editor at the Kyiv Independent. Alexei, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Alexei, many of us have heard recently about Russia-linked priests being arrested, evicted from premises of this super important monastery in Kyiv, Kyivopetersko Lavra. And there have also been cases of Ukrainian authorities accusing the priests of collaborating with the Russian army, arrests and so on. and In the backdrop, there is this long-standing divide between the kind of Russia-linked Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the non-Russian-linked Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And there are all of these different streams of Ukrainian Orthodoxy. And some of these churches essentially still operate under Russian jurisdiction. So I want to start with this historical backdrop. How come Ukraine doesn't have a single, united, independent Orthodox Church? Well, it depends how far into history you want to go, right? Um... Initially, initially, obviously, Ukraine had um, a single Christian church, mm-hmm. uh, but that ended 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. So what actually happened is that, again, uh, the Rus, the Kievan Rus, how they call it, was baptized in 988, uh, according to uh, the official history books, I guess. And the main seat of the main uh Orthodox priest, the Metropolitan, was in Kiev. But then, as a lot of things in history happens, uh, were ended by the Mongols. <laughs> so basically what happened, Mongols uh, raised Kiev and the churches and everything. And by that time, that was around mid-13th uh, century, that was actually 1240, the Metropolitan of Kiev, he was called uh, the Metropolitan of Kiev and all Rus, Uh, he moved to a safer location, actually, to uh, first Vladimir, uh, a city in modern-day Russia, and then in around 50 years to Moscow. The fun fact is that he was still called the Metropolitan of Kiev and all Rus, but he was now in Moscow. And what happened later was actually now debated among historians, church officials, and so on, is that there was periods when uh, the Constantinople, uh, the patriarch in the Constantinople, which is the most important church official in, in this religion, um, actually wanted to separate the Moscow church and Kiev and Kiev churches, which were now under the Lithuanian uh, Grand Principality, right? And so... If we're taking kind of the Ukrainian stance here, then there was a separate uh, Kiev metropolis created by Constantinople uh, when Kiev and central and western Ukraine was part of first Lithuania and then Poland. So by uh, mid-16th-17th uh, century, uh, Kiev had a separate metropolis from Moscow. What happened is that As Russians like to do, uh, Moscow just stopped communicating with Constantinople. 
if we want to go into a even bigger uh, rabbit hole in this, then it happened because of the Council of Florence in uh, 1448 when the Eastern Orthodoxy said, "Okay, fine, uh, we'll we'll start uh, communicating with uh, Catholics again," and the Russians didn't like it, so they just stopped communicating with Constantinople. And in a hundred years, Constantinople was fine with it and said, okay, you can have your own church. And what happened is that by 14th, 15th, and especially 16th century, uh, the two churches in Kiev and Moscow were separate entities. It actually changed uh, with the Cossacks when uh, Bogdan Khmelnytsky, the Hetman of Ukraine, uh, asked for help from Moscow. Uh, the territory of Kiev and the surrounding principalities was transferred then to the Tsardom of Russia. And now Russia had their hands on the Kiev uh, metropolis. And so this is where the question of modern um, religious right is standing. Because what Russians say is that they took over the Kiev metropolis and Constantinople allowed them to govern in Kiev. Basically, what happened is that the Kiev metropolis became kind of subordinate to the Russian Orthodox Church. And what does Ukraine think about that? Well, Ukraine says that because Constantinople gave uh, Russia the right, then Constantinople can take it back. And technically, if we assume that Constantinople is the, the main Eastern Orthodox Church, then that's correct. But again, because this event happened in 1686, not a lot of information is available about the legality of this transfer. That's the main question here is, can Constantinople take the Kiev church back? And can Constantinople declare independence of the Ukrainian church? But didn't they already do that, I think, in 2017, when our Orthodox Ukrainian church became independent from Moscow? Well, yes. Uh, so that's the problem, because Constantinople said that uh, basically it has the right to grant autocephaly, meaning church independence, to the Ukrainian church, which they did. Right. Russians say that because they think that the Ukrainian metropolis is part of the Russian church, then only the Russian church can give it the autocephaly, which it didn't. And it would never do, right? Obviously, because the Russian church is not a religious, but it's a political uh, institution. So I will, I think that giving Ukraine independence in any sphere is not of Russian interest. And wh why does all of this even matter? I mean, why does the adherence of our church to Moscow religious leadership matter? Because it seems like the problem here is much deeper than maybe the different language of the liturgy or different religious practices. Well, there's um, kind of two answers to this question. First, if we're talking about the liturgy, right, then obviously uh, Ukrainians in Ukraine want the church service in Ukrainian. They want the church officials, the priests to be uh, speaking the same language with them, knowing their problems, helping them out, supporting Ukraine against Russia. So all those um, things. But if we're talking about uh, kind of 
the political and historic context, then again, uh, going back to history, uh, I would say that the Russian church for the past 300 years was deeply connected with the state. And the problem here is that it's still connected to the state. So since early 18th century, uh, the government officially controlled the Russian church. And I'm not saying this because uh, we have some kind of uh, grievances against the Russian church. No, that was official. And since 1701 till 1917, actually the Holy uh, Synod uh, of the Russian church, which was appointed by the Russian emperor, controlled the Russian church. And so what happened afterwards is that after a one-year independence, then the Soviets started controlling the Russian church. And again, it was definitely infiltrated by KGB agents, by those sympathetic to the Russian regime. So when we have a Russian-controlled institution in Ukraine, obviously that causes problems not only for the people who go to churches, but for the state and for national security. And that's the main reason why Ukraine, and not only Zelensky, but his predecessor, Petro Poroshenko, also wanted independence for the Ukrainian church, because having it being controlled by Russia is a question of national security. So Russia basically weaponizes what, what should be a strictly cultural, spiritual institution for essentially its expansionist political aims, right? And Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian church, supports the war publicly. He uh, is shown in most religious holidays next to Putin. He supports the Russian troops. And the Russian priests uh, also kind of convey this message by the head of the Russian church. I wonder what is the role of the Orthodox Church inside Russia then? I mean, does it function highly politically too? How religious is the Russian society in general? Well, it's interesting that if you ask a Russian, uh, he or she will say that they're deeply religious. Actually, uh, the polls that are available say that over 70-75% of Russians are deeply spiritual, they're deeply religious, they believe in God. When they are asked when they go to church, most of them say never. But if we're, if we're looking at uh, people who sometimes go to churches, that's around 5%. So... They're not religious, but they still like their church and they listen to it. So you don't have to go to uh, your bishop, but you can support or like what the, the head priest, the, the patriarch is saying about life in Russia, about the war and so on. And that's not only connected to Ukraine, that's also connected to their infamous law on gay propaganda and uh, where they basically ban people uh, for their preferences. So like you, you can't even wear like a rainbow t-shirt or a bracelet in Russia. Yes. Because that's and, gay propaganda. And the thing about this is that we say that the state bans gay propaganda in Russia, right? But this also comes from the church because primarily. the church, yeah, primarily was the one who uh, was opposite to basically rainbows. If that makes sense. So you mentioned a lot of Russians say they believe in God, but they don't actually practice the religion. Is that a similar situation to Ukraine? No, it's actually pretty different in Ukraine because Ukraine is 
more religious in a sense that more people attend the church. And that's why it's really important here who your local bishop, who your local priest is, because people actually communicate with them, right? right. In Russia, um, those who say they're religious, they know Kirill, right? The head uh, priest. Mm -hmm. But they don't know who actually runs their monastery or their uh, church. In Ukraine, not most people, but around 30 to 40 percent do. And that's why it's so crucial for people on the spot to have a priest who they trust and who they believe and who can they speak about their problems. So we got what's called Thomas, this document that grants us autocephaly, right, in 2018, which means that we had a split in our orthodoxy, right? So technically, no, because the split was uh, conveyed back in the early 90s. Ukraine had an unrecognized Orthodox Church called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchy, right? And it always wanted independence, but Moscow and uh, Constantinople didn't give it. And only in late 2018, when actually the Ukrainian government got involved, Ukraine received the official blessing for the creation of an official independent church. So... Nothing changed except the fact that the Ukrainian church that was kind of semi-official and was in the gray zone became official. And now we see this kind of um, two churches, meaning one is officially independent according to Constantinople and one is subordinate to the Russians. And the Russian church only acknowledges uh, the one that's controlled by Russia. So, and, I, and their names are almost the same, right? So we have the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate and then the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And that's the independent, strictly Ukrainian body, right? Uh, these two churches, yeah, because the problem here is that they actually are registering their own name. And that's how they want them to be known as the Ukrainian church, even though, for example, the one uh, is controlled by Moscow, right? But it's still, it points in every kind of document it publishes that it's the Ukrainian church, which kind of is, it's a really interesting question because if you ask most people who go to churches before 2018, 2019, they didn't know the difference, the difference, which church belonged to which kind of jurisdiction, C, jurisdiction right? And so um, it's actually a funny story that my grandma has two churches near her house. One is controlled by Moscow and one is now independent. And what they did uh, during Easter is that they went uh, for the service. But if, for example, the service in one church was delayed or the church was overcrowded, they went to the second one. So the difference wasn't really felt back in the day? By, by most people, no. I think most people in Ukraine, they don't really care about uh, who this priest is subordinate to. Obviously, now, after the full-scale invasion, people start noticing this, right? But, but, but before that, no. It was just a, a religious kind of dispute. And so did anything change after February 24th? We, we talked about how the kind of Moscow-controlled church has had a variety of problems with the loyalties to Moscow. Did that shift at all after the full-scale invasion? Well, nothing changed in their behavior. It just became more obvious. And that's why the state started looking into this Russian-controlled church 
which kind of forced the Russian-controlled church in May of last year to declare independence from Russia, to say that they don't support Russia's war against Ukraine, and kind of make this public stunt. Why do you call it a stunt? Because in religious practices, to formally declare independence, they had to ask for autocephaly. So they had to officially ask for independence. From Moscow. From Moscow, which they didn't. And for many people in Ukraine, that was just a safe face act, meaning that they wanted to have on record, on camera, the fact that they are not subordinate to Russia without actually doing anything. I see. I mean, their officials constantly now talk about the fact that they have nothing to do with Russia. They have no connections to Russia. So all of that is bogus. Yeah, it's a lie because they know the official religious proceedings uh, where they have to ask for official independence. They chose not to. And besides that, we have multiple cases of priests from different uh, Russian controlled churches in Ukraine uh, supporting Russian troops. Uh, promoting Russian propaganda, and doing all the sorts of stuff that Ukrainian officials have been accusing them of for years now. Since 2014, when Russia occupied Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk regions, like part of them, right? Um, Ukrainian priests uh, that are controlled by Russia have been supporting Russian troops, have been conducting religious services for Russian army and so on. Like the most recent case in Kharkiv Oblast, which actually blew my mind, is that, um, again, I'm going to use the word allegedly because uh, it's the Ukrainian security service that's saying this, right? And it still has to be proven in court. But what happened is that a priest, a Moscow patriarchy priest in Kharkiv Oblast, which was partially occupied by Russia, uh, supported Russian troops, held religious services for the locals where he kind of tried to convince them to support the Russian troops. It was filmed by Russians. It was used in Russian propaganda. And as a, a completely innocent person, after Russians left, he fled to Russia. So it sounds like Ukraine security services are taking this issue pretty seriously. There have been dozens of arrests, right? There have been dozens of arrests, dozens of searches all across Ukraine. Uh, many uh, priests were actually charged with treason inciting hatred, supporting Russian troops, and so on. And the question here is that um, many Ukrainians ask now is that are the Russian priests suddenly so anti-Ukrainian or they were always anti-Ukrainian and just the security service decided to take a step after Russia launched a full-scale invasion? And to be honest, it's probably the second option because we saw so many cases like this since 2014 when the state just decided not to anger uh, the religious community and didn't proceed in really obvious cases of treason committed by priests that are controlled by Russia. And what about now? Is the government speaking out publicly about this? Like how, how big is this a problem in the political arena? Well, yes. Finally, uh, the government took it seriously. Uh, obviously, it's because of the full-scale invasion and many churches uh, working with the Russians. So uh, now the government doesn't have a choice but to take it seriously. And recently, uh, I would say since December, uh, we see a step further, meaning that it's actually checking 
many important uh, lavras and churches and so on, um, conducting searches of premises where priests live and finding uh, Russian propaganda, books about Ukraine non-existing and R Russian uh, flags and, and so on, which is, which is pretty absurd that only now on the ninth year of war, we're, we're finding this is the most obvious case of maybe not even like working with Russia, but supporting Russia. And that should have been noted, right? The church itself says that this is not a problem of the entire church, that these problems exist locally, kind of priest to priest, case to case. How can we assess that? Is it really the problem of the whole institution? The short answer is yes, because it's a whole institution that kind of cultivated this uh, stance towards Russia. Uh, right now, the National Security and Defense Council imposed sanctions on 10 priests, and definitely uh, it will continue. The sanctions imposed mean that their assets are blocked, they can't conduct financial operations, and so on. But the problem here is that it's the institution that's the poison, and stopping the entire institution is way harder than imposing sanctions on specific priests. Why is that? Because it doesn't exist. What do you mean? Fun fact about the Russian uh, church in Ukraine is that it's not registered as a legal entity. It exists only in our imagination. What this means is that the National Security and Defense Council can't impose sanctions against the church because on paper, in the government registry, there is no such thing as Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchy, right? It's basically, from the legal standpoint, it's around 10,000 churches that follow one religion controlled by Moscow. That's it. So when the state tries to uh, impose some kind of sanctions, it can impose sanctions on a specific priest. It can charge a priest with treason if it finds so. It can uh, nationalize, basically revoke land rights uh, from, the, from this religious institution. But as a whole, there's nothing the state can do. So we can't have a situation like we've had with Russia-linked TV channels or political parties where the court ordered the closure of them and they can no longer operate in Ukraine. The interesting part here is that it's really similar to a TV channel that it spreads Russian propaganda, but the difference is a TV channel is owned by someone, it's an entity, and the church is not. So what the state does right now, it uses this clause that most religious institutions, uh, meaning churches, lavras, monasteries, and so on, are actually owned by the state. They're just leased uh, for free. Uh, to this Russian church, which is pretty absurd, but that's how we roll in Ukraine right now. And when uh, we see this kind of conflict igniting, then what the state does, it basically revokes land rights of this church, meaning that it takes um, the property that it officially owns back into state possession. And then usually what it does, it gives it to the independent Ukrainian church. So that's kind of the only legal loophole that Ukraine can use now. But again, even if there's a court order um, which says that we have to ban this Russian church, 
there are tens of thousands of them, right? So yes. you, you'd have to issue court orders for every single little church that follows the Moscow Patriarchate, which is just not going to happen. It's even harder than that because, again, they're kind of, there's 10,000 churches, but they also are not legal entities. So uh, what happens here is, yes, uh, the state leases uh, the church to a specific entity, but most likely it's just a shell company. It's just, it doesn't exist on paper. So it can take away the land rights, but it can't ban the priests because they can just reinvent themselves, right? It's, it's something that it's, it's really weird in the sense because when we talk about the church, the almighty church, it's actually present only in our imagination. You mentioned that the only thing the Ukrainian government can do is revoke land rights. Is this what we're seeing with Kivopicharska Lavra right now, where priests are being evicted? What's the whole situation there? Yes, that's what's happening in Lavra right now. Uh, why is it important? Because Lavra is uh, the stronghold of the Russian church in Ukraine. Uh, it's one of the most important religious sites in Ukraine. It's a major uh, monastery in practically in downtown Kiev which has different premises, has a lot of monks living there, and many people attend service there. So what Ukraine is doing right now is returning uh, this major uh, and super important religious site back to the state. It started when they evicted um, the Russian priests from one of the uh, premises, the main, uh, basically, chapel. Uh, and what they did is they held the first, for the first time in history, they held a service in Ukrainian in the Lavra, in downtown Kiev, which was a major, major victory for Ukraine. Now what they're doing is they're clearing Lavra from all the other Russian uh, priests. There is the upper Lavra, where most religious sites are situated. There's a, the lower Lavra, where monks live. There's caves where uh, relics of saints are lying. So for Ukraine to control this premises, this whole complex of religious uh, sites uh, would be a major win. And the only way they can do it is by revoking land rights. So until recently, Kivipucharska Lavra was controlled by the Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, of the Moscow Patriarchate. And now the Ukrainian government is fighting them, trying to evict priests. But then there is a whole another matter here. Lavra was controlled, was headed by uh, this very infamous, scandalous guy, Pavlo Lebit. And now he's under arrest, right? Yes. Uh, Pavlo Lebit, or as he's uh, known in Ukraine, Pasha Mercedes, uh, for living a luxurious lifestyle. Actually, um, when he appeared in court, he had a watch, uh, Philippe Patek, uh, that costs uh, 36,000 euros, which I'm okay with people having cool watches, but you have to kind of wonder where he got this watch, right? And there was uh, multiple times when the state tried to investigate corruption in the Lavra, investigated uh, treason and so on. Now he's under house arrest for two months for supporting Russian troops, for basically denying that Russia is at war with Ukraine which is against the law. Um, concerning the expulsion of monks, well, Ukraine controls the premises, right? Ukraine controls officially the Lavra. It was uh, leased 
to the Russian church. Now, when Ukraine cancels the lease, obviously it wants the Russian priests out. So that's the major news of this week. And I think going forward, we will definitely see more. But what we can say is that finally, Ukraine is taking this question of uh, the Russian-controlled church seriously. And I think that this is only the first step. And soon we'll see that uh, many Ukrainian churches are returned to the state and then transferred to the independent Ukrainian church. And how are people reacting? Like, do, do people want to ban this church? Do people not care? Well, more than 50%, according to polls, support uh, banning the Russian church. Um, what happens now is that we see uh, some churches that were controlled by Moscow are now transferring under Ukrainian authority. Uh, for example, in Western Ukraine, in Khmelnytsky, what happened is that a Russian-controlled church uh, was, uh, the priest in this church beat up a Ukrainian soldier. After which, uh, first, the people of this parish uh, voted to transfer the church from the Moscow Patriarchy to, to Kiev. Um, and then even the city council and then the regional council um, revoked land rights of most um, Russian-controlled churches. This happened in Kamenspodilsky, a city in the same region. So there's more actions towards revoking land rights. And we see that people actually support this. Obviously, many people who go to churches, they don't think about Moscow or Constantinople in their daily life. But as we see now that when uh, bombs are falling on their houses, when Russia is committing war crimes across Ukraine, then for many people, it's finally important that their priest is actually pro-Ukrainian and is not controlled by Moscow. Now we'll be answering a few questions that we got from our supporters on Patreon. Our patrons get a chance to ask us questions every week before we record these episodes, and they can also get access to exclusive events like thematic discussions with editors and more. You can get such access for as little as $5 a month. It's really simple. Just go to patreon.com slash independent and support us there. So the first question is, how vociferous is the support of Ukrainian Moscow Patriot priests for the Russian invasion? I guess we kind of answered that with the whole episode, but do you have any specific, extremely scandalous and memorable moments in mind? I think the fact that uh, priests that technically belong to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchy were present when Russia um, in the Kremlin was proclaiming its annexation of Ukrainian regions that kind of gives you the notion of what's the stance of many of those priests. Obviously, um, some of those priests were uh, living under occupation and so on, but you got to wonder what's the actual support of those priests uh, towards Russia and their troops. Another question that we got from a supporter on Patreon is what percentage of the Ukrainian population actually worship within the Moscow Patriarchate Church? Well, if we look at the polls, then the number of people worshiping uh, the church controlled by Moscow has been decreasing uh, year to year, right? 
Right now, it's around 4 to 5%. Before that, it was around 20%, somewhere around 18 right? Um, the problem here is that, as I said earlier, uh, obviously, if you're caught on the street and you're asked, uh, what church do you follow, uh, the Kiev church or the Moscow church, you would obviously say the Kiev church, mm-hmm. right? Um, and plus, there's uh, cases when people fled. There's a lot of people who also live in occupied regions, so we don't know their opinion on this question, right? But the main problem here, I think, is that we can't actually trust the polls because I think most people don't care that much. To be honest, uh, I'm pretty certain that the person who will say on the street that he or she uh, follows the Kiev church might not know uh, to which parish uh, their church they actually go to, right? So um, here it's a question of national security and people understand that they should support the Kiev church, that it's important that the Ukrainian church is independent from Moscow. In reality, I think most people still don't care that much. Well, Alexei, thank you very much for being with us. It was really interesting to listen to you. Thank you for having me. Also this week, Ukraine has brought 10 soldiers and two civilians back from Russian captivity, the government reported on April 3rd. Ukraine also received the first 2.7 billion tranche from the IMF, which is a part of a negotiated four-year financial aid package, which is worth approximately $15.6 billion. President Volodymyr Zelensky said the situation around Bakhmut in the east of Ukraine remains, quote, complicated. And if there is a risk of losing personnel due to your Russian encirclement, the generals in charge will make, quote, appropriate decisions. And finally, Poland delivered the first MiG-29 jets to Ukraine, which are crucial to Ukraine's planned counteroffensive. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please support The Kim Independent on Patreon at patreon.com slash and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.